So those eight limbs that we went through before, the yamas, I could call, uh, you could call them the restraints. It means just stop fucking with other people, right? Is the technical description. <laughs> the niyamas, commitments, try and do good things to help others and to pr promote your spiritual practice. The asana is the physical practice to bring the energies into the central channel, right? To work with this inter interdependence of the body, of the energies of the mind and the, and the thoughts and emotions. Then uh, prachihara, withdrawal of the senses. The last four of the yogic limbs, a yogic limbs, are all about meditation. Does that give you a clue as to what yoga is about? You know, I think asana is mentioned twice in the, in the Yoga Sutras, which is the Bible of yoga. Is it twice? Yeah, maybe it's one. Stira Sukhamasana is one. I think, yeah, I think it's a few more times than that. Because they talk about like steady practice, but it could be applied to all levels. Like It's not necessarily steady practice will bring ease just for the asana. It's also with the yamas and the yamas and the meditation. And it also is what you de it depends how you, you interpret those words as well. It could be of making yeah. music. It could be of making love. It could yeah. be a steady practice of being a good... Partner. Well, yeah. asana for a start in Sanskrit means seat. Yeah. So, steer and Sukhamasana, which is one of the oft-quoted verses from the uh, Yoga Sutras, mm -hmm. our teacher translate as stay seated in happiness. Not the asana, the physical poses, will bring you a feeling of happiness, which is a common translation. Mm -hmm. And what that speaks to is the idea of the interdependence between the mind and the energies and the body and so forth. Remember we were saying before, you can just be happy and kind and that brings the energies into the right place and brings you that wisdom. You display the symptoms of wisdom when you're being happy. Interconnectedness, kindness, compassion and so forth. Right? So that's the asana. Um, the prachihara, withdrawal of the senses, the last four. So being able to control, at least bring the senses inward focused. Ideally, you could be sitting beside a jackhammer and meditating if you're really good at pranayama, uh, prachihara. I'm not, but... Um, sorry, pranayama was before that, the breathing exercises. So the, the breath is the interface between the coarse reality, if you like, and, and the, and the uh, inner winds, the prana. And so as we're talking about, if you're angry, you can slow down the breath. and makes you less angry, changes your emotional state, brings the prana into a good place. Um, so prachihara then, withdrawal of the senses, the last four of meditation. Dharana, concentration. You could say just being able to put your mind on one thing, at least. Well, we find it difficult. I should do it as a demonstration. Maybe we'll do it in a sec. I challenge anyone to hold their mind on one thing longer than three seconds. <laughs> you know? And I'm, talking about, I'm talking about meditators as well. We all have difficulty with it, especially in our ADD, inbox, text, phone, email, etc., etc., society, right? It's difficult. I've read a th uh, an article by a, psycho a psychologist recently saying that uh, concentration is now acknowledged, being able to focus as one of the most important aspects of being happy. People who can't focus uh, find it less easy to be happy. All right? So that's an interesting point when we're talking about this is a path to happiness, not even nirvana or enlightenment, just being a happy person. Six, single-pointed, uh, the ability to focus. Dhyana, the seventh, meditation. So that's being able to hold your mind on that object. So the first of all is just being able to put your mind on the damn object. Right? Then the, the seventh is to be able to hold it there for an extended period of time. Now you're meditating. Mm -hmm. And then the last is samadhi. Perfectly balanced meditation. Right? And that's what we need. Look, samadhi has various different interpretations. But we'll say for this, um, in, in this instance, it's being able to hold your mind perfectly on the object, undistracted. 
and then you're meditating. And the, ob the, the idea is to reach this profound state that we've all reached on a dance floor before and to hold your mind there mm. on that state. Right? So you're not at the beck and call of the drugs. You're not at the beck and call of, you know, whatever, your shopping list or whatever else pops into your mind when you're trying to meditate or your inbox. So the goal of yoga and of science is to recognize that the distinction between the inner and outer, between a self and other, is illusion. Right? Is maya, they say. So how would we act differently if we really understood that? Right? It's a good question to ask ourselves. What's the point of this? How would we treat others around us if we really understood that these boundaries were superficial? Would you ever go to sleep angry with your partner? You know? Would you ever mm, walk past a homeless person out in the street? Would you ever not smile back at someone who smiles at you in the street? Something as simple as that, that I do find myself doing now and again, you know, it's just, I think, I'm meant to be someone who thinks about these things, what's my problem? Right? So, the words of yoga and science are both just signposts that point to an experience of reality that happens when we train our minds in meditation. This transformative mystical experience. In the Tao Te Ching they say, the Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. Right? Same idea. The words that you give it aren't the actual experience. Words can't describe this experience. Right? In the yoga texts of the Upanishads, in the South Asian tradition, they say, Neti Neti. It means not this, not that. Anything you want to say about this experience, this experience of God as they term it, whatever you want to call it. Not this, not that. And that's why the wise sages of most traditions will say, those that know, do not talk. And those that talk, do not know. <laughs> right? The, all that experience is beyond words, beyond language. There's another interesting quote that I teach Jesus sometimes, Lamarugis. He said, um, spirituality is like a swimming pool. There's a lot of, chala, a lot of chatter in the shallow end. <laughs> I thought it was very apt. So um, sometimes uh, he also describes meditations like these, these meditations on the wisdom of interconnectedness. These meditations on the inner body and the prana. He talks, talks about them like uh, little Luke Skywalkers that are flying into the death star of ignorance. Right? And every day you sit down on your cushion and you just send another little Luke Skywalker in and hopefully one day, one of them Luke Skywalkers is going to get in and explode the Death Star of our ignorance and we're going to realize this interconnectedness. We're going to realize this wisdom directly, experientially. But for that to work, we've got to sit down and, you know, fire in them, them little Luke Skywalkers, which means sitting on the damn cushion every day and practicing yoga. Another in, um, translation of the word yoga is practice which tells you a lot about what yoga is about. And union is another one. The union of self and other. The union of ourself and our world. Understanding that connectedness directly is the point. So is this possible? Can we achieve nirvana? Can we achieve enlightenment? Or is it just something that, like, you know, dead Indian guys did 2,000 years ago? <laughs> like the Buddha or whoever else, you know? No, we do. We sit here in the West and we're like, 
I don't live in a fucking cave somewhere, sitting there meditating. You know, I go to my job every day. I've got an iPhone. I mean, what? Me? Is that, Enlightened? Is, is what? that enlightenment considered a chronic sense of euphoria? Is that what that is? A chronic sense of self, of, of interconnectedness, of kindness? Is that what that is? <laughs> There's various descriptions of it, but in what, I mean, for a start, it's beyond words, as we just discussed. So I would say, nati nati, it's not this, not that. <laughs> I'm just avoiding the question. <laughs> well, I, the, reason, the reason that I ask is because, for me, the balance comes from appreciation. That's you, good. Mm. And, and that gratitude carries me through when I have mm. those beautiful moments on the dance floor where somebody did something that I never thought was humanly possible and I was moved. I was moved to feel beautiful and connected and mm. with um, a community of people who understood. But like, there are definitely moments where it's not my actions and it's not your actions, but somebody does something to you that is absolutely heinous. Well, that depends on how you see the world. From the, there's a kind of a diversion if you want to go there. Um, briefly, from the Buddhist yoga perspective, Sorry. no, 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 it's good. It's good, good to cover that. I mean, you, you made a couple of good points, and life, I'm trying to so. address at least one of them. From the perspective of Buddhist yoga, from the yoga and or Buddhist perspectives, both even separately. You know, you would say that um, you know there's karmic dispositions. We're talking about the world being interpretations, right? And, like, I understand that there's a third-party perspective, but, um, you know, I've got a friend who uh, people are, like, really ignorant to, you know, just really awful to on a regular basis. Well, here's one way of looking at it, then. Besides going into the karmic aspect, yeah. which we'd say on the basic level, if you'd never did anything irritating to anyone else, you would never see any irritating people in your world, right? Hard, hard. So that's the, that's the basic answer. Yeah. Here's another one that's kind of maybe more, what well, is useful in a different way. Um, you can either look at people as people that exist objectively, discreetly, out there, aside from you, with no connection to you, of which both yoga and scientists are now saying that's not the case, but you could do, we, mostly we all do, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you could say, well, you know, they're out there aside from me, um, objectively there's nothing I can do about that. Or you can go, well, that person seems like an irritating person. But if I'm not irritated by them, how are they an irritating person? Mm -hmm. An irritating person exists as an irritating person because you're irritated by them. Who's yeah. causing the irritated person when you look at it from that perspective? Right. And do you see what I'm saying? So there's many different ways of, of approaching it. The karma one is important. You just may be very careful about not irritating other people. Oh, right? So then you sort of try. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I'm, totally. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we all try to, but, you know, also it's, they talk about, you know, body, speech, and mind. So in your mind, not even thinking thoughts about, you know, dissing out other people, cussing other people, or whatever. You know, so it comes down to that level. But a really useful way of looking at it is just going, well, if I can learn to not be irritated by people, I eradicate irritating people from my world. Mm -hmm. The world isn't objective out there. It's a relationship between you and your mind. You change your mind and you change your world. Mm -hmm. So instead of calling them an irritating person, call them an awesome teacher of patience. <laughs> <laughs> right? You can't learn patience without irritating people. Right? So you go, oh, thank you, teacher. Thank you for teaching me to be 
a better person. Thank you for teaching me to have a nicer world where I don't have to get irritated, where I don't have to constitute you as an irritating person. So, that's the short answer. Thank you. <laughs>